welcome to this week's sermon from C3 Church Narara. We hope you enjoy this message from Pastor Chris Brown. For more information or to contact us, visit c3church.narara.net. You know, um, I love uh, the Thai people and have preached there many, many times. And um, last time I was there with my good friend Sung Wien Duen Kam, uh, preaching in Bangkok, he asked me to go and speak at the church pastored by his brother, Sung Won, in Nakhon Patom. If you're familiar, you all know where that is. Just, uh, just not far from Bangkok. So we went and had this wonderful revival meeting and the Thais were so passionate and enthusiastic and many of them had been to Bangkok and heard me preach there. But now we were in their hometown, in their church and they're very excited and they're very appreciative of, you know, some falang, as they call it, a foreigner, you know, coming. And, and, it doesn't, and I joke with my friend Sung Wien, it doesn't really matter if I preach well or not, because he's a really good preacher and my tie is so hopeless that I can hardly understand what he's saying anyway. And so we always joke that, uh, you know, it, it'll get across the line because if I'm missing it, he'll just preach something else in Thai and they'll be blessed, you know. And, um, uh, and so we, we had this great revival meeting and then we sat down and enjoyed refreshments and the Thai is very gracious. They come and look after the visiting pastor and their pastor and the pastor's brother who's, you know, the sort of the apostle over their church movement. And, uh, and they brought us fruit. They're very proud of their fruit, lovely fresh fruit. And they had coconut there. And I'm not a real fan of coconut, but, you know, whatever. There's lots of different fruits there. And then they brought a particular coconut, and the two brothers really lit up. They're like, oh. And I was like, what's going on? They go, oh, this is a very rare coconut. And they're real coconut connoisseurs. You know, they're like, oh, this is, this is a big deal. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, it's got this special soft flesh on the inside, this sweet taste. And I'm thinking, it looks like any other coconut. They said, no, 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 only one out of about 200 trees can grow this kind of coconut. And even then, only very rarely does that tree produce this kind of coconut. And they said, and it's only a very experienced farmer who can tell that this is one of the special coconuts. And the farmers can shake because you can't just cut it open and then it's not worth much for very long. The, sh- the farmers listen and shake and hear the What's going on on the inside? And they know, oh, this is a special one. And then they go to market. Instead of selling it for like 10 baht, which is like 50 cents, they sell it for 300 baht, like $15, you know, 30 times the price. And I'm like, really? Wow. Oh, yeah. And they, all, so, and they cut it open. Of course, it just tasted the same as all the others to me. And, and, I, and, and normally, you know, in that sort of cross-cultural scenario, you would feign, you know, how wonderful it is. And, oh, you know, but I know these guys well enough to say, can't taste the difference, guys, you know. But they're like, oh, no, it's awesome, it's awesome. One thing we did agree on was how this was so analogous of this passage in the Bible. We said, this is just like David. And we went, yes, yes, yes. And so I want to read that passage. You may know where I'm going with this because there's a famous story. The first time you actually encounter David in the Bible. And you may know that Israel had cried out for a king. God wasn't so keen. You didn't need one. Look at Moses. Worked pretty well. Direct theocracy, you know. But okay, you can have a king. Here's Saul. He didn't work out. And so Samuel then, while Saul is still king, is sent to the household of Jesse. And he is told to go and find the new king and to anoint one of Jesse's sons. And so Jesse gets all his sons lined up. 
and there's Samuel the prophet and they all kind of figure out what's going on because he's got this horn flask of oil and he's going to anoint someone to be the new king. And it says in 1 Samuel 16 verse 6, 1 Samuel 16 verse 6, if you want to turn there or there, it is up on the screen anyway. When they arrived, this is all the brothers, all the sons of Jesse, Samuel saw Eliab, that's the eldest, and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands before me, stands before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but... The Lord looks at the heart. Okay, that's our key verse. And I'll read on. Jesse then called Abinadab, the next son, and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by. There's some names here, parents, you know. I haven't heard these lately, but you could, Abinadab, and Shema, got a nice ring to it. Um, but Samuel said, no, I, the Lord has not chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said, the Lord's not chosen any of these. He asked, are you sure? Are these all the sons you have? And I mean, this is a classic story, isn't it? Well, there is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he's tending the sheep. You wouldn't be interested in him. Well, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him, had him arrived. He was glowing with health, had a fine appearance, handsome features. The Lord said, rise and on him. This is the one. Hadn't even figured, hadn't even been brought in the lineup. Didn't even qualify for the B team. The, he wasn't even on the bench. You know, he's just like, but you wouldn't want David. He's just the punk little kid out the B team. Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the presence of the brothers and from that day on the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David and Samuel then went on. Um, Isn't it a great story? And so just like the expert farmer who can tell from the sound of the coconut what no one else can tell, God sees perfectly beyond the outer exterior of people into the heart. He knows what's going on in our hearts. And we can put on a brave face. You know, we tend to present a certain way and we can posture ourselves to be perceived by others the way we want to be. But God sees through all of that (laughs) and he sees the true state of our hearts, all the motivations and attitudes and desires, both good and bad, and and the, 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 the pride or the humility, the sin and the rebellion as well as the willingness to repent and change the fears the insecurities as well as the faith and the courage it's all swirling around inside us all these different emotions and directions and values and ethics and and it's all there in the heart and God sees and the question I want us to think about today is what did God see in David's heart what did God overlook or, or sorry, why did God overlook the others and focus in on this guy? You know, what was going on in his heart that was so different to the brothers who, of course, by all appearances, looked like they would be a good candidate to be king? You know, they were tall and, and uh, impressive and the eldest was in the army and, in fact, the others were already enlisted in the army and they had, had already made some movement into society to look successful and David had none of that no experience nothing to rely on nothing external but something going on in the heart and God led Samuel to ah, 
nail this one down. And so what was it? What, what attracted God to David? What was going on? Well, at least two qualities that I want us to identify. And we see them played out in David's life. And we also get to learn from them and consider for ourselves, would God see that in my heart? Is, is, is that part of what is swirling around? And if it's not, then what can I do so that it could be part of what I have in my heart? Yeah. And so the first one is what the Bible calls a heart after God's own heart. Because that expression, a man after God's heart, is used to describe David twice in the Bible. It's actually used a few chapters before what we read because Samuel is told by God, Saul, you've missed it. And he rebukes Saul for his disobedience and then refers to David as a man after God's own heart. And then later when you read in the New Testament, the book of Acts, I think it might come up. Here's a reference to that incident. And it says, there it is, Acts 13, 22. After removing Saul, he made David their king and God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. And he will do everything I want him to do. So that's pretty cool because a man or a woman, only two genders, but it's all inclusive. A man or a woman who has a heart after God's heart leads to obedience to God, just like it says right there. So we've really got a choice to go and do everything that God wants us to do or to do everything that I want to do. (laughs) You know, which direction? And there's often a tension and you can feel that sometimes in your heart, in your conscience. I want to go this way. I want to, you know, in spite of what Fleetwood Mac sung, you know, it is best not to go your own way. You know that song? Uh, It's best to go God's way. And there is often a fork in the road, in our heart, in decision making. And, uh, And of course, if you keep tracking closely to what this looks like or feels like, having a heart after God, then you will keep tracking after God's best plan for your life, making the best decisions. A heart that beats in sync with God's heart. That's what David did. That's, that's what helped him understand God's will for his life. And, and it helped him overcome, you know, self-doubts, setbacks, challenges of all kinds, which, you know, did occur. <laughs> David had his share of problems and, and the only way he got through some of those problems was not based on his own wisdom or natural strength or any other resources that he had. He's just had a heart that relied on God, trusted in God, lent towards God. And you see that right from the outset, early on in his life. You know, after that anointing, it's years before David actually becomes king, is publicly crowned king. But he's on a journey and soon after he gets that anointing season, uh, he's still having to mind the sheep, uh, but the army of Israel are facing up against the armies of uh, the Philistines. And you know this story where they're all gathered and there's one guy in particular that is standing out and intimidating the entire army of Israel and his name's Goliath. Literally a giant, nine foot tall, coming out, taunting all the army and no one would stand up and take him on. David hears about it and he's sent to give his brothers who are in the army some supplies and he starts asking, what's going on? Why isn't no one taking this guy on? And so he says he'll do it, he'll have a go, but 
the brothers, you'd like to think that they'd say, all right, little bro, you know, we're blood, we're family, we're with you. No, they totally diss him. They, they, they throw disdain and discouragement his way, which is tough because we have enough problems with people that really aren't on our side or wouldn't expect to be on our side. You'd like to think you've got family behind you. I must say a little shout out to my big brother here. We had our seasons as kids. We had our times. We fought terribly. Like, I mean, not just words like fisticuffs. Like we would have just, blood was drawn. We had some terrible times. But he always had my back as the big brother and was very encouraging uh, when I needed him to be. And so sometimes that might be fighting other kids in the local neighbourhood. And, okay, fighting was a bit of a theme in Forestville. It was, you know, um, back in the day. Or it might have been when I got uh, locked up inside a, a phone booth by that big, tough bully and took my soccer ball and rolled it down Roswell Bridge. Never saw that again. Uh, although Mark wasn't there just then. But, uh, you know, I'm sure you would have done your bit. Um, and very encouraging, uh, you know, when whatever I was into, sport and, and all that. So there you go, Mark. You're welcome. Um, thank you for that. And... Um, but David didn't get that just when he really needs. You know, he's, he's, he's got enough pressures on. He's thinking, oh, I'm going to take on Goliath. Right, brothers? And they're like, you're an idiot. And that's not what he needs. And so uh, he has to rely on God. He has to put his trust in God. And, of course, he comes, you know, the story. He gets up in front of Goliath. Goliath disses him as well. He's like, what? You send this punk? This is a joke. No way. I'm going to knock you down. But what does David say? He says, you come at me, Goliath, with the sword and the shield and the javelin, but I come at you in the name of the Lord. And he says, and in God's name, he says, I'm going to strike you down today and I will cut off your head. He even prophesies exactly what he's going to do. And he does it all because of his reliance on God. Isn't that awesome? And so this boldness, this courage, again, didn't come from his own sort of natural, built-up, self-made man kind of abilities, uh, but his reliance on God. And you see that all through his life recorded for us in the Bible. Saul, the king, tried to kill David 21 times over a nine-year period. <laughs> really jealous. And, and David was respectful, had opportunities to take Saul out, didn't take him, even left clues for the king saying, look, I could have killed you. See that? I'd rip the... Yeah, but, yeah. And Saul just kept having a go. He's very respectful. He had his own men. You know, they returned to the camp at Ziklag. All their wives and children have been kidnapped. The camp's been ravaged. And David's like, guys, this is tough. They're like, yeah, it's tough. We're going to kill you. They blame him and said they were thought of stoning him. And what does it say? David encouraged himself in the Lord. He just went to God. He sought God. He found all the strength, the comfort, the answers that he needed in the Lord. And so should we, yeah? Uh, and we can make his Psalms our own because we have this amazing record of what is going on in David's heart when you read many of the Psalms that he wrote, something like more than 70, 70 that are attributed to him of the 150 and others that we aren't sure of the authorship but could well have been David. And, uh, you know, for us, when our hearts are troubled, when the pressure of life comes, when people have let you down or you've been hurt and you're stressed and you're anxious, well, 
you can turn and should turn to God the way David did. And look, there's so many different Psalms you can read and and pray over. Uh, look at just one of them. Look at the first few verses of Psalm 25. David writing, Lord, in you I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. Shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth. Teach me, for you are my God. You are God, my Saviour. My hope is in you all the day long. These, this is a prayer of passion from the heart that is keeping him in track with God's will. And we need to pray these kinds of prayers. If you, if, you, if you don't know what to pray, if you think, oh, pray, I'm supposed to pray, I don't know what to pray. And, you know, well, you re- read the Psalms. Let the Psalms be your prayer. And you'll find great uh, connection and comfort to what David goes through. You'll go, flip, this guy, yeah, he's really feeling it here. Oh, God, you've abandoned me. What's going on? You think, oh, I'm feeling you, man. This is like, yeah, life is tough. But as Ruth often says and preaches well, get to the end of the psalm. Sometimes he starts with a bit of a whinge and it's a lament, a complaint even. But at the end of the psalm, yet I will trust you. You, God, are going to look after me. I'm putting my faith in you. you know. And so you make sure you read the whole thing and catch not just the, the feelings and the, the craziness of the storms of life, but the faith, the heartfelt connection and reliance on God that will help you get through that storm as it did for David, yeah? And so you can feel when you read those Psalms, this determination in his heart to love God, to worship God, to find strength in God, to rely on God's protection and provision and guidance. It's awesome. So that's, there's a message. You can go home now. But you've probably heard that kind of stuff before uh, about, you know, David, great, you know, rely on God, trust in God, you're having a hard time. It's all right, it's going to work out. So you got that? Right, but there's another side I really want us to notice here, another part of David's heart that we can learn from. And this is, pregnant pause. Thank you. This is a heart of humility, a heart of honesty, and in particular a heart before God that allowed David to admit his faults, his sin, his struggles, his failings. And this is a really big issue because um, uh, not everyone can do this so easily. We need to really develop and encourage this part of our heart. And, uh, and it, it's not easy because it exposes ourselves. And some people, all of us to some degree, just want to, like I said before, put on a brave face, even before God, even before ourselves. And at its worst, we're pushing stuff under the carpet that really would be better off dealt with. So to David, has anyone ever heard of Bathsheba? So I ask that because many years ago, Ruth and I ran a connect group and we had this lovely young woman coming um, who was very keen, brand new Christian, and she would come for dinner before the connect group and we would just download what we knew about the Lord. And she's asking all kinds of questions about the Bible, about God, about life, about people, about church and getting to know people and all that. And one night we got onto the subject of, um, 
adultery and just being faithful in your marriage. She wasn't married, but she wanted to be. She was already in her 30s and sort of considering what she'd broken off with a long-term boyfriend. And, um, you know, and we said, well, you know, adultery, it's, you know, it's got its consequences. You know, I mean, look at Dave and Bathsheba. And she went, yeah, right. Do I know them? Are they in church? Dave, are they in connect group? And we, we you know, had to, and, and those of you who laugh understand that, You've probably read the Bible, but of course, we take nothing for granted. Uh, so Bathsheba's in the Bible, and no, she wasn't. Although that's an interesting name. We didn't have anyone in our connect group by that name. And so we then pointed her to the story that we read about. And uh, in case you didn't know, Bathsheba was a woman already married. David committed adultery with her. Not only that, he then had her husband Uriah murdered. And, you know, that's there are a couple of pretty significant Issues right there. This is the same guy that sold, God, I love you and I trust in you and I want to serve you and I slayed Goliath and I'm going to be king and all that. Whoa. And so David, he gets caught out, you know, by the prophet Nathan. And, uh, and at that point, when he has his sin exposed only by the prophet at this point, he's got a range of options, particularly because he's the king. So, he could easily have just called a hit out on Nathan. Yeah, right. Well, thanks for that, Nathan. Just go home and, fellas, you know, and Nathan just doesn't make it home. It happened a lot in the Bible. In fact, in history, all throughout history, people with power get corrupted, do everything they can to protect their position and will go to extremes to save themselves and take people out and kill them. And yet he didn't do that. Uh, he could have just gone, yeah, all right, well, thanks, Nathan. You know, that's a bummer, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm wired. I'm a man and I'm the king, so I'll just find another Bathsheba or more. And his son Solomon got into that, you know, kind of direction of life and had too, too many women to do himself good. He could have done the classic blustery defence. Well, 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 hang on. Okay, Nathan, I hear what you're saying, but... It's not my fault. It's these flipping Eastern architects, the way they design these roofs. It's all exposed. Where's a colour bond roof when you need it? I, I, it's not my fault. Look at it, look at it, look at it. Come out on the palace. If you don't look at the back, look from the back. Look at all these people. They're all out on their roofs because, you know, all the houses had these roofs built that people could go up. That's, can't blame me for what the builders and the architects got up. And Bathsheba, well, not my fault. She's so good looking. I mean, really, it's her fault. It's, and that's a real easy direction and, you know, scenario that we can follow. And so he didn't do any of that, did he? He repented. He just got nailed and accepted it. And the very first words, when you read that passage, uh, when he was nailed and exposed by Nathan, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And then he fasted, he prayed, he worshipped, and soon after, he wrote this psalm, which you may know, Psalm 51. And it's even got a title in your Bible, it'll say, after he was exposed for his sin by Nathan. Um, and it says, uh, God, have mercy on me. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity, another word for sin. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, my mistakes, my sin. My sin is always before me. I know it. God, I know it, and I'm sorry for it. And I'm just throwing yourselves, throwing myself in 
to your arms of mercy. Now, so that is the heart of David, who's a sinner, but deals with the sin the right way. And of course, that wasn't the only time David sinned. I mean, he lied, he failed to discipline his children. Really, that ended up badly. You know, they, that, you know his, his, his failings are there, right there in the Bible. It's fantastic for us to, to read, along with the heavy price that he paid for his sins. But his heart allowed him to admit his sin. Here's my point. He turned to God with remorse, with repentance, with honesty, with raw, uh, exposing, painful humility. And there he discovered how gracious and compassionate and wonderful and redemptive and forgiving God is. And so can we. Come on. And so, you know, this is really worth considering because, as I said, the first one we discussed, the first part of his heart, if you can you know, not really separating it, but the first aspect of his heart towards God, that's easy. Not so much easy to do, but certainly easy to understand and easier to do than this one. Because when you just open your heart to God, you oh God, I want you to bless me and I seek you. And of course, you'd soon discover, yeah, this pays off. This is, I've got a blessed life. God's protecting me and providing for me. It's fantastic. But this one, the clear positive results are not, so obvious for our well-being, certainly in the short term. It's uncomfortable. It can be very problematic and painful because, as I said, you've got to be raw and honest about your mistakes and, uh, and you've got to go beyond just seeking what you want for yourself to, oh, God, really? Okay, I'm going to lay down all my dreams and desires and my whole life and then I'll, I guess I'll just pick up what, what you give me. I hope that is going to work out and of course it does (laughs) that's the good news and it's a big issue today I think it probably always has been in history but particularly today it's very easy for us to deflect blame to to say well it's not my fault I'm just a victim of circumstances of society it's 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 ScoMo's fault it's it's some it's 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 here your fault, Frosty. You're in position of authority. If anyone in a bed, it's my teacher's fault. It's Mr. Hanlon, psycho teacher that he was. Honestly, let's talk about Mr. Mr. Fittis with the whip. With remember, Mr. Fittis, we had a principal walked around with a whip to scare the dogs away. Psycho, weird guy in a black suit. Man, honestly, get oh well. Let's go. We could. Where could we go with it? Mrs. Davis, we loved her. She was fine, crabby, cranky, but we respected her and loved her. We sh- anyway, we can talk forever about weird psycho teachers. Teachers, be good. Katie, come on, turn, the, turn it around, will you? Come on, get, get nice. Tim, all right, here's my chance. Tim, teacher up here. Oh, where do we begin? No, these guys are awesome teachers, you know. And so, and Tim, put the whip, leave the whip at home, okay? All right. And, um, but honestly, you know, it's very easy to equate correction or criticism with, they don't love me, they hate me, I'm a terrible person, ah, you know. But there is sometimes an opportunity for us to consider, maybe I'm not perfect, maybe I did have something to do with that, maybe I did make a mistake, maybe I could learn something, maybe I need to put the mirror on my issues and, ah, you know. Uh, it's just incredible when people are caught out 
even with obvious wrongdoing, how you can deflect it. Like I love watching these crime shows, true life crimes, because Ruth's never going to take me out. I've figured out all the different poisons and the ways these... <laughs> You know, women have it go. So she says, what are you watching that for? I'm just research, babe. I'm just, I'm just making sure, you know. And I just get Keelan to taste the drinks at dinner just before we go. It looks lovely, darling. Here, Keelan, have a taste. Just watching. Not that I'm worth anything, but uh, so really I've got nothing to be worried about. But there's one particular show I've seen recently about uh, the courts in America. And it's, uh, it's amazing. Quite often they've got people who have been convicted before a judge and jury and or jury and they're, um, they're standing there and they say, well, you've been convicted of this crime. Uh, sometimes it's a major deal. Sometimes it's something petty, but they'll still say, you've been convicted. Have you got anything to say? And it's just incredible. Sometimes you see people just say nothing or they're remorseful. But it's incredible how often people say, I just want to say, this isn't me. This wasn't me. That's not who I am. I, I, I don't know how that happened. I'm a good person. It's not my fault. It's, it, this wasn't me. And I'm like, well, if it wasn't you, who was it? it come on, own it. It was you. <laughs> it's no one else. It's you. And they're, all, and they're desperately just wanting people to say, you're right. You're a good person. We don't, I don't know how we got here. Off you go. Off you, you know, you're no, you've got consequences. You messed up. You, you know. You killed the guy. <laughs> Sometimes it's that dramatic and they're just trying to blame society. And, uh, and so hopefully you're not appearing at Gosford Local Court anytime soon, but in our own way, we have the same principle applying in our home, marriage, workplace, whatever. There will be opportunities where we can either deflect and blame others or just go, yeah, okay, no, I can, I can see. That's my mistake. That's the heart of humility and honesty that David had. Uh, Jordan Peterson talks about this in his latest book and he's talking about uh, uh, being the best we can in his own intellectual way and, uh, and, and how part of that includes the need to confront our own shortcom- shortcomings even if it's uncomfortable. Listen to what he says. If you attend to your conscience, you will begin to determine that some of the things you are doing are wrong you will begin to develop a clear picture of what is wrong and by implication of what is right. Right is not the least, the opposite of wrong, and wrong is in some clear sense more blatant and obvious. A sense of right can therefore be developed and honed through careful attention to what is wrong. You act and betray yourself and you feel bad about that. You do not know exactly why. You try to avoid thinking about it because it's less painful and easier in the short term not to think about it. You try with all your might to ignore it, but all that does is increase your sense of self-betrayal and further divide you against yourself. So you reconsider, perhaps, and you confront your discomfort. You, may, you note your disunity and the chaos that comes with it. You ask yourself, you pray to discover what you did wrong, and the answer arrives, and it is not what you want. And part of you must therefore die so that you can change. And the part that must die struggles for its existence. It puts forward its rationale. It pleads its case. And it will do so with every trick in its possession. 
employing the most egregious lies, the bitterest, most resentment-eliciting memories of the past and the most hopelessly cynical attitudes to, about the future. But you persevere and you discriminate, judge and decide exactly what you did was wrong and then you start to understand. I love that. And I, I mean, I had to read it 12 times to understand it. So maybe you need to get the book if you're sort of trying to follow it. But he just recognises how hard it is sometimes to be honest with ourselves, especially about our sins. Now, of course, self-criticism can go too far. Like North Korea, for example, because they have a thing going on in their society. There's actually a requirement that all citizens, starting from middle school, middle primary school, that they attend weekly meetings. They're called Sangwei Chongwa, if you excuse my Korean in, uh, accent or interpretation of how they're supposed to pronounce it. These are self-criticism public meetings. And I read about this in one book particularly where a young woman who escaped from North Korea wrote about her upbringing in North Korea. And they have to admit to personal failings and then receive criticism from others. And she talks in her book, going to these meetings when she was in primary school, she writes this, these sessions could create an atmosphere of great fear and bitterness. I took them to be part of normal life, but there was nothing positive about them. They were entirely negative. The atmosphere in the classroom was deadly serious, even though the accusations were often ludicrous and there was only so much for which young children could be held guilty. It must have been humiliating and painful for the adults standing up to criticise colleagues at their workplace about some personal failing in front of the whole workforce. So North Korea is a pretty good example of how not to do life or how not to run a country. And so uh, all they're doing is just crushing people under criticism and condemnation. And the Bible talks about that because the answer is not for us to be condemned, but simply to be convicted by the Holy Spirit, which then leads to repentance and freedom. And you may know the verse, uh, I think here it is in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So that's a real key verse, especially if you've suffered from shame or guilt for sins or mistakes. So we are not at all saying, you're a sinner, feel bad about it forever. It's like, be honest, admit your sin, go to God, get free and forgiven. Okay, it's not that hard. It's exactly what Janelle was saying. Quite a good process without the slaughter and the blood. So it's awesome in the New Testament, yeah? So, um, and so we don't have to be afraid, you know, of facing our faults. We don't have to get all defensive and blustery and all that. It's just called sanctification. The ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in us saying, this is an area that isn't perfect, Bring it to God, let the Holy Spirit attend to it and grow and develop his fruit in our lives. So it's important and it doesn't, and we have to be careful that we don't ignore it just because it's uncomfortable, yeah? And so this is what I think led David beyond his terrible sins to forgiveness and furthering his call in God. And there's great reward, honestly, if we live ah, from the inside out, we navigate our way through life by following our inclination in our heart towards God to find, you know, it keeps our moral compass strong and pointing to the true north. You know, it helps us with developing integrity. And uh, 
How are you going? I'll close soon. I've got one more story. It's about golf. Hey, I'm not a golfer, but I read about Bobby Jones. Martin, any other golfers? Okay, at least one. Martin, I've got a story for you. Rest of you, I'll be back in five minutes. But so, no, listen, Bobby Jones is considered one of history's greatest golfers. He was famous not just for his victories, but what, for what happened at the US Open in 1925. Hit a ball into the rough. That's off the smooth fairway, right? I know that much. And uh, he was lining up for his next shot. The head of the club brushed the grass behind the ball and the ball moved. No one saw it. But then when he hit his shot and he got to the end of the hole, he added a stroke and said, that's a penalty stroke. And the official said, well, what for? He's told him. They said, no, don't, don't worry about it. And he's, even his playing partner, who's a competitor, said he tried to talk him out of it. And uh, he said, no, I, I, I don't want to, you know, ignore it. And he knew that he would, he would violate his conscience if he hadn't put this one-stroke penalty against himself. And uh, sure enough, he lost the tournament by one stroke. And uh, when the tournament officials complimented him for his sportsmanship, he simply said this, you might as well praise me for not breaking into banks. There's only one way to play this game. And, um, and uh, you know, I just think that's awesome. So, uh, yeah, I mean, he could have won the tournament. But he won something more important, his integrity, yeah? And it happened again the year later in the same tournament, the 1926 US Open. He's in second place. He's putting and there's a strong wind. He has his putter next to the ball. He lifts the putter up because they sort of line it up and think, oh, I'm going to hit it. No, hasn't hit the ball yet, didn't touch the ball. Lifts the putter up and the wind blows and as he moves the putter, the wind moves the ball. And he says, well, that's a result of me moving the putter. Again, they tried to talk him out of it. And again, he said, no, I'm taking the stroke. Oh, but he went on and won the tournament. Ha <laughs> ha, praise the Lord. So uh, back to David. Um, I think David would have played golf with integrity if he was brave enough to take on that crazy game that d- crushes your soul. Um, <laughs> So, uh, look, if you want humility, go and take on golf. That's humbling. Especially, I played with a mate who was really good and uh, I'm hopeless and he uh, gave me a couple of tips. He said, no, this is what you do. And we were at Gosford and there was the tee, teeing off first hole and all the people, it's right in front of the clubhouse and everyone's waiting. I'm like, oh, no, I don't want anyone to see, you know. And this guy is really good. He has a lovely swing. He was nearly a professional. He got down to one or two or something, you know. And he's got this swing, phew, and the ball looks fantastic. It goes straight down the fairway. And people go, oh, oh, look at this guy. Oh, and then they look at me because I'm the playing partner. Sure enough, boom. And I top the ball. It goes about five metres down there. Won't be a moment. Get the ball. Can I, can I put it back on the tee again? It's terrible. Um, back to David. Um, look, David shows us, really, a person after God's heart doesn't have to be perfect Far from it, but thanks to God's mercy and grace, he found forgiveness, restoration, renewed strength, everything he needed to keep moving forward in life, yeah? And to, beyond the flaws and the failings, to follow and serve God, and we can do the same. 
He wrote the Psalms. He brought the ark to Jerusalem. He saved money for the temple. He rebuilt the tabernacle. He got his son sorted to get the temple done. And he, he was a pioneer in worship. He had full-time worshippers to just praise God. And, uh, and he ruled with wisdom and kindness for 40 years in the golden age of Israel. So he goes down in Bible history as a great man of God, not because of his own strengths, not because of all that he had by himself on his own, but simply because of his heart, heart after God, heart that was honest and willing to admit his fault and a heart that made him a man after God's own heart. Yeah, come on, let's learn from that. Let's pray. We thank you, Father God. Uh, for the examples that we read in your word, and particularly today we think of David. Wow, he really messed up, but, uh, and so do we, but he was restored because of his heart and your great grace, Lord. And we lean in towards that. And we thank you for the relationship that we can have. And you know, today, if you don't yet have a personal relationship with God, you can have that through his son, Jesus. Being a Christian is not just being a good person or attending church or any other external behaviour. It's a personal relationship with the living God. He loves you. He knocks on the door of our heart, the Bible says, so that He would come inside. And it starts with admitting our faults, our sin, our mistakes and the need that we have for God. We've offended Him because of our sin. But He is so gracious and loving, He forgives us and includes us in to His family, to His plans for the future, to His His church. And, and Lord Jesus, we thank You for that. And again, if that's You today, you want to pray a prayer of commitment, just pray where you are or come and talk to me afterwards. Or if you're online, send us an email. We'll get someone in touch with you and encourage you to have and grow in this personal relationship with our Father in heaven. Thank you, Lord. Your touch on everyone here today. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this week's sermon. For more information or to contact us, visit c3church.narara.net